Articles by Desiring God We Wish to See Jesus Written and read by David Mathis Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Little did they know how well they spoke, not only for themselves, but for the whole human race. John chapter 12, verse 20 reports that some Greeks had come to worship in Jerusalem for that fateful Passover leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. They approached his disciple Philip, who told another disciple, Andrew. Together, the two came to their master with the request of the Greeks to see Jesus, to which Jesus gave this spectacularly unexpected response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That was not the answer they were expecting, the disciples or the Greeks. But their wish to see Jesus was not rejected, but redirected. It was an admirable wish, profoundly so. And if they remain in Jerusalem for the week, they will soon see the most important sight of him, crushing as it at first will be. His time has come to be glorified, which will not mean leading a charge to overthrow Rome and seize the crown, but laying down his life like a grain of wheat. He will not bear much fruit unless he first dies. These Greeks will indeed see him and glimpse a sight far greater than they could have anticipated or imagined, far more horrible and far more wonderful. They will witness the depths of his humiliation that will prove to be the very height of the glory of the one who truly is David's long-promised heir to the throne, as shocking and unexpected as it will be. And as they see him in his divine and human excellencies, united in one person and culminating in the cross and its aftermath, they will have all they wished and more in the request they made expressing the deepest longing of every human heart. Infinite Abyss Famously, Blaise Pascal wrote in his Pensees of the infinite abyss in the human soul that we try to fill with all the wonders and the worst this world has to offer. There was once in man a true happiness of which there now remained to him only the mark and trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. So also, the great Augustine, more than 12 centuries before Pascal had spoken of the great, undeniable restlessness of the human heart until finding its rest in God. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Moses, seeking to leverage God's remarkable favor on him, was so bold as to ask to see God's glory. God permitted him a glimpse of the afterglow, of divine beauty, not his face, and Moses made no complaints. Yet. Redemptive history was not done at Sinai, 
centuries would follow. The kingdom would be established in the land and decline. Human kings would rise and fall and the nation with them. And the same gospel in which the Greeks expressed their wish to see Jesus opens with one of the most stunning claims possible. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The desire to see Jesus was far more profound than these Greeks could have guessed. They wished for amazement in the presence of someone great. And what they got instead anticipated the heavenly vision the apostle John would receive while in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Behold the lion. In John's vision, none in heaven or on earth or under the earth is at first found worthy to open the scroll of God's divine decrees of judgment for his enemies and salvation for his people. Sensing the weight and importance of the moment, John begins to weep, perhaps even wondering if his Lord, the one who discipled him, the one to whom he's dedicated his life as a witness, is not worthy. One of heaven's elders then turns to him and declares in Revelation 5.5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Having heard the good news, John turns to look. And what does he see? Not a lion. He says in verse 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes. We might mistakenly assume this was a disappointment, that John, hearing lion, experienced some letdown to see a lamb. But that is not how John reports it. This lamb is no loss. The lamb is gain. The one who was just declared to be the only one worthy is no less the Lion of Judah. He is also the lamb who was slain. The lion became lamb without ceasing to be lion. He did not jettison his lion-like glories, but added to his greatness the excellencies of the lamb. He is a lamb standing, not dead, not slumped over, not kneeling, but alive and ready with fullness of power, seven horns, seeing and reigning over all the seven eyes. So too the Greeks in John 12 who wished to take counsel with the purported Messiah and Lion of Judah. Whatever disappointment they experienced in the moment in not having their immediate request fulfilled, and whatever devastations they endured on Good Friday as they watched in horror, it all changed on the third day. Then their wish and perceptive inquiry was answered beyond their greatest dreams, not just Messiah, but God himself, the very lion of heaven, and not just divine, but the added lamb-like glory of our own human flesh and blood. And that same blood spilled to not only show us glory, but invite us into it, Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. Looking to Jesus. Plain as it may seem, the author of Hebrews provides profound direction for the human soul when he says simply, consider Jesus. This is not a one-time exhortation. 
but continuous counsel for every day and at any moment. And again, at the height of his letter, drawing attention to the great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews charges us to lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There is unmatched power in the Christward gaze. As Jesus himself would soon say in John 14, 6, to the same Philip who relayed the Greek's request, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Paul too, in one blessed flourish in 2 Corinthians 4, would celebrate and commend the unsurpassed glory of the Christward gaze. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Unbelieving eyes have been blinded to the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But we, by the mercy of God, have eyes of the heart opened to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We might here speak of the manifest Christocentrism of the New Testament and a kind of healthy asymmetrical Trinitarianism in the Christian faith. Contemplating the Trinity through a Christological lens, as Dane Ortland writes, and Christ through a Trinitarian lens. We wish to see Jesus. He is the interpretive key to the Bible, the pinnacle of history, and central in Christian preaching, evangelism, and sanctification. And so we fix our eyes on Him. Biblical Trinitarianism doesn't constrain us to symmetrically parcel out our attention and focus to each of the three divine persons according to modern notions of fairness, balance, and equality. The New Testament is far from fair in this sense. Rather, as humans ourselves, we receive a peculiar centrality of the God-man. As the one person of the Godhead who has drawn near in our own flesh, taking our own nature, and to no diminishing of the Father or Spirit, but precisely according to their plan and work to direct attention to Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus, would be a happy refrain to echo at key junctures in the Christian life. Before morning Bible meditation, I wish to see Jesus. Before conversations with the unbelieving, I wish them to see Jesus. For pastors preparing to preach to imagine these words on the lips of our people, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Made for him. We were indeed made for God, with an infinite abyss only he can fill, with a restlessness of soul satisfied in nothing less than him. And even more particularly, we were made for the God-man, for the greatness of God himself who draws near in our own flesh and circumstances in the person of Christ. The lion-like greatness of God in his divine glory is sweetened, deepened, and accented by his lamb-like nearness and human excellencies. And his glories as the humble, meek, self-giving lamb are enriched and magnified in the register of lion-like poise and majesty. We wish to see Jesus, to know him, as both great and near, and enjoy Him forever. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.